Home. What makes a home a home? Is it the people? The photos on the wall? Or the sense of relief when you walk through the door? Welcome to We Are Here. The We Are Here series was originally released in 2018 and published on the Women of Cincy website. We shared these stories exploring housing insecurity in our city through the eyes of folks who live it every day. These stories are every bit as relevant today as they were in 2018, and it's our hope that re-releasing this series will encourage each of you to explore this topic further and advocate for change. Together, we can move our city forward one story at a time. We are here, the faces of Weightless Anchor, part one. We are here. It's a phrase that's been echoed by single moms and in city chambers and around encampments, and we just couldn't get it out of our heads. These are the stories of those experiencing and fighting housing insecurity here in Cincinnati. We believe telling stories changes things. We believe listening changes things. We promised the community that we would tell their stories. It's up to you to listen. Visit womenofcincy.org housing for the full series. This is part one of the story of our time at Weightless Anchor. In part two, we're befriended by the lively and hilarious Mercedes and Kay. In part three, we chatted with Steph as she watches a movie. We arrived at Weightless Anchor in East Price Hill on a hot, hot July Thursday, about half an hour before the home opened. We could have benefited from the wisdom of Casey Booker, the ministry's director, for hours, but our time was short and women were already knocking on the door, seeking an afternoon of comfort in the teeny, cheery home. In fact, two women were already in the kitchen, one half arguing with the other, and half arguing with herself about whether she was ready to seek treatment for her addiction. Casey seemed unfazed, not unsympathetic in the slightest, but she had a job to do, and her job was to love that woman, real, straight-up, sometimes tough love, whether she was ready for it or not. While the women continued talking in the kitchen, we thanked Casey endlessly for her time and sat down to get right to the point. Interview by Kirsten Foyter, photography by Angie Lipscomb and Chelsea Walter. Tell us about Weightless Anchor and what you do here. So we have two houses, one's in Lower Price Hill. It's about a mile from here. You just go straight down Glenway. That was our original house. That opened in 2012. So Weightless Anchor is part of Block Ministries, and our mission is to just serve our neighbors, and we really saw a big need in Lower Price Hill for women that were struggling on the streets. So we worked with a church down there and opened a place during the day that women could come in to get meals, to shower, to get food, to be prayed for in hopes that the love that was pouring out on them, that they would be able to believe that they had worth. Lower Price Hill used to be one of the biggest open soliciting areas in Cincinnati. And then in 2014, they closed down State Avenue and did major construction. So all the traffic went up Glenway. So in 2015, we opened to this just because we saw another major need up here. If you drive down Warsaw, you can see many women that are involved in sex trafficking. Pretty much hop every corner, you can see someone. So last year at this time, we probably had on average of 6 to 10 women coming in a day. Now we have about 20 to 25. What changed? We've built the trust, and so maybe women that were hesitant to come before are like, okay, I know people have been coming there pretty much for a year. They're not going to snitch on me. 
That's a big thing in this community. A lot of women have warrants. Pretty much everyone that comes in this home are active users. So that's kind of how I think it's grown. It's just the word's gotten out. People feel safe here. In a way, we work with the District 3 vice team that focuses on prostitution in the city. We have the same mission, that is, to help these women find freedom. I was like, how can we help you the best? And they said, just get women to court. So we provide rides to court, to detox facilities, to treatment facilities. I was in Lexington taking a girl to a hospital yesterday. So we just meet those needs, and that's the best way that we can help them sometimes. With this series, we're trying to tell the story better and just say we're all humans. What advice would you give us on how to tell these types of stories? The first thing that comes to mind is trauma. All of this begins with trauma. A lot of it's generational. So many people that are displaced. You hear all about veterans all the time. That has a lot to do with trauma and the unaddressed mental health issues. So I think a piece of that is explore people's stories. What has happened to them? What kinds of things have they already had to experience? And what are they battling? I've been here for a little over a year. And it is like if you walk with someone trying to get back on their feet, you begin to understand how hard it is. I had no idea. When you're growing up, you're like, oh, just get a job. That's just the mantra. Get a job. Then you make money and you can get your house. It's that easy. And just watching people go through that. It just gives you so much empathy for the situation because it is so hard and just watch people get kicked back over and over and over again. It just gives you a better understanding of how hard it is to get back on your feet once you have become homeless or had some sort of instability in your life. What led you to get involved here? I was a special education teacher for seven years and then I was getting my master's degree in mental health counseling so I needed more of a part-time job. I started working for a nonprofit and I liked it, but there was just too much paperwork and not enough human contact. One of my professors from school, her and her husband owned this ministry. I have been bringing some girls here that I mentor. We have a home that's just for women that are in recovery. So we had been going over there and volunteering and just building relationships with women. Just like that, what does a healthy friendship look like? Maybe for the first time ever, they're getting to see that. So we had started doing just that. And about the time when I was feeling I needed to leave that, another nonprofit, they approached me and asked if I'd like to become the director of this ministry. How has this work impacted you? What are your relationships with the women who come here? I guess I'm like the mom. I really have good relationships with most of the women. Some are more connected than others. For obvious reasons, a lot of women have built up a lot of walls, and we run completely off volunteers besides myself and one other staff member, Tessa. I tell the volunteers to not get discouraged. Like, imagine that they had to protect themselves with this huge wall for their whole lives, and every day, we're just taking off one brick from that wall. It's not going to come down overnight. They're not going to trust us completely overnight, and they might not never trust us. And that is okay. That's not what we're here for. We're just here to love them unconditionally. It can be really tough. I'm kind of in a season where I'm experiencing some compassion fatigue. I've been doing this for a year without a break. And so in August, I'm going on a week break. It's the most heartbreaking thing I've ever done in my life. We've had women die. 
We've had women overdose in our bathrooms. Right now, this home has been the busiest it's ever been. And with two volunteers and like 20 women in this small home, it feels like chaos. We just don't have enough capacity to handle the volume of people that we're getting right now. So it's been something that we've really been praying about and trying to figure out what that looks like. Is this just for a season? Do we need a bigger house? If we do, how do we get that house? And then this week, everything changed. It was so weird. This house had a really negative, dark feeling about it. I just think everyone is hot and tired and exhausted of this life. And so they're angry. And I understand that. But that's hard when I'm also trying to take care of volunteers that just want to love them. And then this week, we had so many women that were like, I'm ready. So yesterday, one woman went to Lazarus' home, and she's detoxing from alcohol and laid her life down for the Lord yesterday, so she's in recovery. This morning, another woman went to Dayton for recovery. I took a lady to Lexington last night to get into the hospital. She was going to die in the next couple days if she did not get into a hospital. And then hopefully she goes today, gesturing to the woman in the kitchen. And that would be four women off the streets in 24 hours. And that is just unheard of in this ministry. Now, statistically, this is based on the facts that I've seen here. Three of the four will be back on our doorstep next Monday. And that is the heartbreak. You see this glimpse of freedom and they get a taste of it. And just all the lies that they believe about themselves and all the things that this world has told them. It's louder than the truth that they are worth it. And so that just beats them down. And detoxing is hard. And if you've been using drugs to numb the pain and the trauma and maybe being molested your whole life as a child and all of a sudden that's taken away, you have to deal with that. You can either deal with it with zero coping skills because you don't have any or you just go back to the streets and continuing to numb yourself. It is so hard. If you had to boil it all down, what are you all up against when it really comes down to it? What would have to change in order for a place like this to not even have to exist? I would say it all starts with families, unhealthy families. Every single person that you talk to here, either their body was sold at a young age by a family member to someone else so they could get drugs or alcohol, or they began doing drugs with a family member at a really young age. Most commonly, they've been molested by a family member and so that's where it starts. The mantra in this neighborhood is that you don't snitch. And so that is the same in families. If you snitch, you're the worst of the worst. You are out of the family. You have no value. You are a piece of shit. And so these generations of families never change because no one is talking about it. No one's healing from it. A huge piece of it, I believe, is on the mental health side. So many people are really hesitant in these neighborhoods to talk to anyone, because again, that's snitching. So I graduate in three weeks with my master's, and what I've been doing for my internship is providing free counseling for people in this community. And Block Ministries has a unique foot in the door because they've been here for 20 years. So people in Price Hill know who we are, and they trust us. So I'm having people come down and talk to me that maybe would never go talk to a normal healthcare counselor. So I have to think change is going to start through that avenue, but it's like this darkness that just continues breeding itself. And when there's no light shown, it's just going to stay dark. If you could make one ask of the system, what would it be? Before Casey can answer, the woman in the kitchen comes in and says, okay, I'm out of here. Casey gives her a hug and says, you've got this. Love you. The woman leaves and Casey turns to us. She's not ready. 
I know she'll be back in a couple days. You can just tell. Like she says that she can't get any lower, but she can. And that honestly has to happen before people are really ready. I mean, that's not my hope for her. I just see it all the time. For the system to understand trauma better, to take a trauma approach look at what is systemically happening in our society. These are not choices. These choices were made for people a long time ago. And that's the hardest part, I think, to understand. Same question, but if you had one ask for your average Cincinnatian, what would that be? It's so hard because you can't teach empathy, and I think that's what they need. So maybe it would be to put themselves in an uncomfortable position for one day. Put themselves in a place where they feel like an outcast, or they feel unknown or unloved, or like sit with what that feels like, because that is what the people on the streets and the people that are struggling feel like every day. We are here, Faces of Weightless Anchor, Part 2. Written by Lauren Lewis, with additional reporting by Kirsten Foyter, Angie Lipscomb, and Chelsea Walter. A few days a week, Weightless Anchor opens its doors to offer free food, laundry, showers, clothes, and friendships to women of East Price Hill. On a hot day in July, they also open their doors to us. While we wait outside, members of the community amble past and glance from us to Weightless Anchor's house. And I wonder if they think of us as newcomers infringing on their community. Standing there, I feel anything but weightless. Our time has waited as we hope to grasp the stories of the women here in just three short hours. With her hair thrown up into a bun, Casey, the director, greets us. As she unlocks the door and we help unload boxes of clothes from her car, she shares the story of Weightless Anchor. The house is a kaleidoscope of common colors, Topes, cool aquas, grays, and dark wood. Popular movies adorn the fireplace mantle, but I'm drawn to a frame on the wall filled with Polaroids of women in Halloween costumes and pennants saying, you are loved. We settle around the wooden table, and at noon, the first woman strolls in wearing a black tank top with her hair piled in an auburn of curls. While we introduce ourselves and state what we're here for, she picks out a movie, The Mountain Between Us and relaxes into the couch. Her name is Steph, and she seems mostly content to bask in the silence between conversations, but we chat for a few minutes. Soon, two blonde women stroll in, Mercedes and Kay, and join us at the table. What follows is a three-hour conversation, interwoven with the best places to find margaritas, interactions with animals, and memories that make us laugh, cry, and cringe. Kay and Mercedes have known each other for eight years, that's when Mercedes started dating Kay's oldest son, Alan. With this knowledge on the table, it becomes clear that Kay and Mercedes' ability to finish each other's sentences is just second nature. Mercedes describes meeting Alan. We were in school. We met when we were 11, but I didn't start dating him until we were older. I was always interested in him, but at first I thought he was a weirdo. He came up to me and when I was walking to school and was like, you want to see something that's really cool? And I'm like, sure, why not, man? And he comes over and he flips open his phone and there's a naked chick on front of his screen. And it's like, yeah, that's just so awesome. Yep, Kay chuckles, that was Alan. Now Mercedes and Alan have a two-year-old son together named Hesher. Together they live with Kay and Alan's best friend and an apartment. But before they had an apartment together, both Kay and Mercedes faced homelessness and even now it's close quarters. 
Hesher. Hesher? But oh. everyone calls him by his middle name, uh, Hannibal. Where'd you pick those names? Those are really unique. Hesher came from a movie, because my name came from a movie. Okay. And um, his middle name actually came from the serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Do you tell people that usually? Or yes. I yes, love I it. Because, it, you know, he's my favorite. He was so smart about everything he did. He was just really intelligent. And I thought that would be really Hannibal great. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. I want I my son it. to be super smart. Like Hannibal. Just not, you know, in a kind of way. Just, uh, sometimes I mess with him and be like, come here, Cannibal. <laughs> he comes to me sometimes. It's funny. <laughs> I know the struggle Kay shares with us. How hard it is to try and find housing. And it's like people, you know, they want to just run your background. I don't have a good background. I've had my mistakes in life, you know, and landlords, they want to do background checks and everything like that. And they just kind of frown upon me. But I've looked over here in Ohio and I've looked into Kentucky and they want all of these different things. They went 10 years of your residence and you're not allowed to have no evictions or nothing like that. And it's like, no wonder there's so many homeless people for real. There's no reason. I was downtown sometime, Mercedes tells us. And I needed a quarter to get on the bus. I asked every business person I could because I know one of them must have a quarter, right? And all of them said no. I walked by this homeless guy. He's like, you're trying to get on a bus? You need a quarter? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, here, I have a quarter. And I'm like, I don't want to take nothing from the homeless guy. I can't take his quarter. I can't do that. She pauses. But he ended up helping me get home. I think about all the people who have come up to me on the streets asking for a quarter to get on the bus. Would I have given Mercedes a quarter if she had come up and asked me? Probably not. I hate it, but it's the truth. And it's something I'll think about later when someone comes up and asks me the same thing. I'd like to think that I've changed. We don't know what led Kay to a portion of her life without a home. She's battled cancer again and again since 2005 has been in an abusive relationship, and has spent time in jail for domestic violence. When Kay mentions she's currently battling cancer for the fourth time, Mercedes says, every time she gets rid of it, it comes right back. you think they'd come up with a cure already. You'd think to just take my boobs, Kay amends. That would be easier, Mercedes agrees. Kay looks around the table. They said that I'm not mentally stable enough, and it was like, how do you know what I am and what I am not? Kay takes medication for ADD and bipolar disorder. And they're like, well, you take all these medications. I don't give a rat's ass what kind of medications I take, you know? I'm just tired of going through this. Take them. I don't need them. My kids are grown. I ain't got to feed no babies no more. Take them. Then I can just get me a big chest tattoo. When her sons, Alan and JJ, were in school and she was battling cancer, both of them dyed their hair pink. At the memory of seeing Alan with his pink hair for the first time, Mercedes laughs. He had shaved his head and left a little strand of hair on the back of his head. It was pink, so I called it a rat tail. Mercedes bounces between the memories of being a child and raising one. It seems that she had the same honest, natural humor growing up as she does now. When we would lose our houses, we would just go to Red River Gorge and we'd live there. Basically, you'd have to pee outside. So I'm not really ashamed to pee outside anymore. But thankfully, you know, I carry around wipes because I have a son. She jokes. 
Red River Gorge seems like a place full of fond memories. And Mercedes dives into a comedic experience with dogs, bears, turtles, and deer. One of the best memories she shares with us involves a prank during monarch butterfly mating season when Mercedes and her brother Kyle scooped up a bunch of the monarchs and put them inside their tent. So when my mom opened the tent, she got swarmed by these butterflies. And this butterfly, it didn't leave. It lived at my brother's face for three days. It was the coolest thing ever. He put the butterfly down and get in the water and swim out. And the butterfly would just fly right back into his face. With her fondness for animals, it's no surprise when Mercedes tells us she wants to be a dog trainer. I think the coolest thing I ever did, like, in my childhood, like, it was monarch butterfly mating season in the gorge. And if you ever go to the gorge, they line up down the road. And you can go there and just pick them up. It's crazy. So my brother went out and picked up a whole bunch of them with me, and we put them in our tent. <laughs> so when my mom opened the tent, she got swarmed by these butterflies. Oh uh, this butterfly didn't leave. It's, it like lived on my brother's face for like three days. And it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> he got in the water, he put the butterfly down and get in the water and swim and get out, and the butterfly would fly right back onto his face. <laughs> That's amazing. We collected turtles one time going in there because they'd be all lining up on the street. Stop! Every time we saw a turtle, I would cry that we needed to save him because we passed a turtle that was dead. It was awful. They just run right over him. So we stopped and picked up every turtle. By the time we got there, we had 36 turtles. During those teenage years, when Mercedes found friends and butterflies, turtles and dogs, her relationship with her mother wasn't the best. She tells us she hasn't seen her in more than a year. She became obsessed with technology. She'd be on the computer every day. Now I try to avoid computers and stuff because I don't want to be like that. I'm never going to be like that. She just likes to play on them. And then after they came out, she started ignoring us way before. But when she didn't have a computer, she would disappear. One time she just disappeared for two months and we didn't know where she went. She said she went to Michigan or something like that. It was terrible. And I was like the worst time of my life. Mercedes pauses and with a confession laughing says, I stole so much beef jerky. One time me and my sister when we were younger got into an argument about Snow White because we were watching Snow White and Mm -hmm. she was like, God, I can't believe she was real. (laughs) No, she's she's not real. No, she's like two years older than me at this point. And I'm like, no. She's not. It lasted like an hour until our mom came home from work. Yeah. I was like, Mom, you need to tell Ashley that Snow White ain't real. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta break it down. I don't know what's wrong, but you should probably tell her. Like, it's time to tell her the truth. Did you cover the Easter Bunny already? I uh, hope so. No, growing up, we didn't believe in those things, like the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. My mom never told me that they were real. Yeah, that wasn't something she talked about. Like we, we read the books and stuff, and occasionally told a couple of kids at school that he wasn't. But <laughs> other than that, I didn't believe in that kind of stuff. But she really heightened my belief in dragons and fairies and mm-hmm. you know mythical, anything mythical. Yeah, it was definitely real. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Despite everything, Mercedes still holds on to a love for imaginative creatures her mom fostered in her. She says she loves drawing dragons and unicorns. 
The more they share about their lives, the more I realize these women are looking for the same thing that every woman looks for. People who will offer not judgment for the past, but hope for the future. As we say goodbye, I glance at the picture frame with dangling Polaroids of smiling women. At Weightless Anchor, it seems they are given just that, hope during both the mundane and the miraculous. We are here, the faces of Weightless Anchor, part three. This is part three of our story of our time at Weightless Anchor. Amid the bustle of Casey and Tessa doing housework and making grilled cheeses, girls knocking on the door of the tiny but lived-in home and heading straight to the kitchen for cookies, our team gathering around the kitchen table, get to know Mercedes and Kay. Steph stretches out on the couch watching a movie. I drift over to see if I can get to know her. We somehow get on the subject of how much it sucks when you pour your cereal and there's no milk in the fridge. Now there's something we can all relate to. I ask her a little more about herself. Interview by Kirsten Poiter. Have you lived in Price Hill all of your life? Yeah, it's home. It's not good. How so? It's just not. And yet, it still feels like home? Yeah, because I know this is where I'll always come back to. What did you want to be when you grew up? A lawyer. You like to argue? (laughs) Yeah, my mom says I'd argue till I was blue in the face. What do you hope for now? Nothing. Just getting through the day? Yeah. Would you want to share your story with us? No. That's okay. This place is really cool. I love this place. If this house wasn't here, a lot of us wouldn't know what to do. We wish they had a place like this that was open all night long because a lot of us just don't have nowhere to stay. Do you come here every day? Yep. Yeah, there's usually girls laying everywhere. Mondays and Tuesdays, they're open from 10 until 4. So a lot of the girls, we get here at 10 o'clock and we don't leave until 4. Does this feel like home? Yeah. It's the most confident answer she's given without hesitation. It's not enough, but it is something. Thank you for listening to We Are Here, Housing Insecurity in Cincinnati. To explore this series further, keep listening to additional audio episodes, or head on over to womenofcincy.org forward slash housing.